0: But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to Christ. Christ. Hey, thanks again, Jack. Twice in a day. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, Uh, We are one church with two locations. Uh, Many of you probably already know this. We have a a second location that meets right across the street from Vanderbilt uh, at 9.30 every Sunday uh, called CPC In Town, and that's led by Pastor uh, Stacy Croft. And so um, glad to be with you here this morning and just uh, want to highlight a few announcements before I get into the text that Jack just read for us. Uh, first of all, children grades one through four, uh, children, staff and volunteers will be available over here for an elementary message that they'll take you to. They'll bring the kids back, parents, uh, as we begin communion uh, after the sermon. And uh, if you're on the end of the row, uh, if you'll take the black notebook and fill it out and pass it on so others in your row can also fill that out, Uh, We very much value having a record of your being here just so we can know that you're here and also please, you know, check the boxes or write us a note uh, if there is a pastoral or other kind of need that you have. So there are two featured announcements uh, that that I want to highlight before getting into the sermon. One is that uh, women uh, in particular, we want you to know about an event that's coming up uh, in just a couple of weeks, two Fridays from now. Uh, Friday, February the twenty-fourth at seven p.m. Uh, it's called Broken and Free, and it's a night here at CPC with our friends Ann Voskamp, uh, Rebecca Lyons, and uh, uh, Christy Knuckles, who's uh, you know known you know for being uh, the the key voice of the uh, the Passion uh, Worship movement and records, so a uh, very familiar voice to many of us. We sing many of their songs. Uh, CPC Women will actually be uh, the official host of this, and uh, registration will be required. Uh, information should be there in your bulletin, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll let you know again uh, next week about this as well. Uh, second, we also want you to save the date for Sunday, April the 23rd, and that's going to be at 4 o'clock p.m. Uh, that's the Sunday after Easter. Uh, That is going to be our next CPC forum. And the the title or theme of that forum is Life Through a Screen, the Benefits, Risks, and Wounds of the Internet. This is for uh, everybody from from young, you know, all the way to elderly and everything in between. Uh, We're going to have uh, three excellent speakers. One is uh, Nashville author Annie Downs, who's going to interact with the question: "Is healthy digital life possible?" Uh, the second will be a professor, uh, counseling professor from Covenant Theological Seminary, uh, who we have uh, a partnership with here at Christ Pres on many levels. Uh, and uh, this will be Professor Mark Fitzie, Dr. Mark Fitzie. Uh, and his talk will be on the impact of pornography uh, on the human soul. And uh, that's, that's his area of, uh, of uh, you, know, you know, chief study. That's what he got his PhD in and uh, just a, a lot of very sobering and yet necessary things to learn from him. And the third will be a yet-to-be-announced high school student uh, who's going to talk about the effect of social media on youth and teens in particular. Our host that evening will be Elizabeth Hasselbeck, uh, just moved to Nashville recently with, with her family, a husband Tim and their kids, their three kids. She'll moderate the panel discussion after the three talks. Um, so stay, stay tuned. We'll be giving you more details on that as, as time goes by. But, but uh, as of now, let's go ahead and turn our attention back to the Sermon on the Mount. We're still in Matthew 5. We're still on the front end of, of, uh, of a long and hopefully very impactful uh, study for us as a community. And today we're talking about the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. And so, you, you'll, you might notice if you've read the Sermon on the Mount uh, once or a hundred times that Jesus repeats himself with this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So it's important to say at the very beginning that Jesus, in using those words, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he is not revising and he is not replacing the Old Testament scriptures. He is recovering them for us. You might notice in the text that was just read to us that Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law of God, but to fulfill it. And then he goes further and says, there will not be one iota and and not one dot of the law of God that fails to go fulfilled. Now, an iota and a dot would be the equivalent in, in the Hebrew Uh, uh, scriptures of our comma or of our apostrophe. And so, Jesus is saying even the smallest, seemingly most insignificant aspect of the law of God, uh, as you see it, eternally significant, and it will not fail to go fulfilled, and I'm going to fulfill it all. And so, when Jesus uses this phrase, you've heard it said, recognize that He does not say, you have heard that it was written, He says, you have heard that it was said. He's talking about inaccurate mishandlings of the law of God, particularly by a group called the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes and the Pharisees throughout church history, they've gotten this reputation for being too fanatical and too strict, uh, but but if, if you take a close look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' message is that the scribes and the Pharisees are actually not too fanatical. The truth is they're not fanatical enough, and they're not too, they're not too strict. The fact of the matter is they're not strict enough. And this is going to be confusing because, um, you know, as, as I've talked about in a couple of sermons in this series already, the law of God says give a minimum of 10% of your income, your resources, your, your increase, back to the Lord. The first 10% back to the Lord, and, and it was the common practice of this, the Pharisees in particular to, to give a tenth, not only of what came in, but also of what they spent. And so, so their giving was actually 20%. It was essentially double what the law required. In the same way, the law says to fast one time per year at the Day of Atonement. And and yet we see in Luke chapter 18 that was the common practice of many Pharisees to fast not one time a year but two times every single week, which is uh, uh, 104 times uh, what the law requires. And so, you, you might imagine, you know, some anxiety brimming up as these first century listeners are hearing, you've got to be more righteous than that. But what Jesus is after here is something altogether different. And his interpretation of the Pharisee and scribe take on the law is is pretty stunning In, in verse 19. He says that they're relaxing the law. He says they're relaxing the law by doing 104 times as much as what the law requires. They're relaxing the law by giving twice as much as what the Law requires… what's he he saying here? He's saying that the scribes and the Pharisees' version of righteousness is cosmetic, it's behavioral, it's external, it's superficial. What God is after more than… he's after externals, which, by the way, take care of themselves, when you prioritize the law from the heart and motivational perspective… When you don't merely look at your behaviors, but you look at the reason behind your behaviors, Your, your reason behind, your motivation behind the behaviors has to be righteous, altogether righteous, Jesus says, which means, as He will teach later in the sermon, the law is not just saying when it says you shall not murder, it's not just talking about the physical act, it's talking about hatred in the heart. When it says that you shall not commit adultery, it's not just talking about the act, it's talking about lust in the heart. Or, 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 you know, he goes to prayer and, and, and to generosity later on in, in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, wait a minute, don't ever pray, don't ever give anything in order to be seen or applauded or recognized by human beings, by, by other people. Don't ever think that your righteous acts give you, somehow give you leverage or somehow serve as a basis for your religious reputation as an upstanding citizen. You know, George Whitfield, the great evangelist, put it this way, we must learn not only to repent of our sins, but also to repent of our righteousness. Three headings today along those lines. Devote yourself to Scripture, dismiss your inner Pharisee, and discover your true righteousness. Now, in five years, coming up on my five-year anniversary at uh, Christ Pres, this will be the first time that I have alliterated a sermon outline. So, congratulations for being here. Uh, my inner Wilson Benton is coming out. I'm not smart enough to alliterate uh, like Wilson does. First, devote yourself to Scripture. Basic Christianity, right? You know, verse 17, when Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, that, that's the way that they said Bible in that time. When, when Jesus says, or when anybody says, the Law and the Prophets, they're talking about the Bible, about the Scriptures. And, 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 and what He's after here is a comprehensive receptivity to all of Scripture. He, he's saying to His hearers, you have to stop treating the Bible like a menu and start treating it for what it is, an owner's manual, and God is the owner. You have to stop the practice of picking and choosing, because that's not obedience, that's consent. That's not surrendering to God as your king, that's reaching out to God as your consultant. All of Jesus means all of Scripture. Because the two are inseparable. This is actually a test, and and, and the the scriptures themselves hold this test out to us. Jesus is holding this test out to us in this text, as well as many, many other places. The disciples hold this test out to us in many, many places, in, in, in the New Testament letters, especially, but also the old. The test of discipleship is this What do you do with the hard parts? What do you do with the hard parts? What do you do with the parts of the Scripture, of the Bible, that contradict you? What do you do with the parts of the Bible that contradict your culture, that contradict your feelings, that contradict your post-Enlightenment instincts, that contradict your pre-Enlightenment legalism, that contradict your desires, that contradict your demands? What do you do with the parts that are hard? What do you do with the parts that push back on you? That's the test of discipleship, because to assent only to the things that we like, understand, and, and, and particularly enjoy, that is agreement. That's following part of Jesus plus something else that really drives our lives. Had a whole sermon on that last week. But Mark Twain put it this way. I love there's so many great little tweetable snippets from Mark Twain, right? If Mark Twain only had access to Twitter back in his day. 140 characters or less. Here's one thing that he said. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. You'll hear it said sometimes, especially in today's sort of post-enlightenment, um, largely feeling-driven um, and lesser principle-driven approach to faith. Oh, I love Jesus. I'm all in with Jesus. I just don't like the Old Testament God. Here's the problem. The Old Testament God is Jesus, and Jesus is the Old Testament God just as much as Jesus is the New Testament God. How can we say that? Luke chapter 24, it's right there. It says that Jesus, with a couple of His disciples, opened up, it says the Scriptures, and beginning with the law and the prophets, explain to them everything in the Scriptures about Himself. You cannot separate Scripture from Jesus. You cannot separate Jesus from Scripture, any part of it. The moment you say that particular verse in the Bible is not consistent with my Jesus is the moment that you cease to follow Jesus altogether. If you're only following part of him, you're following none of him. You're following yourself. That's all you're following. You're putting yourself in the position of being the judge over your creator and your maker, which is really dangerous. It's really dangerous for the the pottery to say to the potter, you know, you may have made me, but now I'm going to remake you. That's very, very dangerous and yet we do it all the time. What does Jesus do when He's tempted? In Matthew 5, the devil comes to Him and throws everything that He… Can, every weapon that He can at Jesus to try to get Him to sin, to try to get Him to, to betray His Father. And every single temptation, Jesus responds, it is written, it is written, it is written. He contradicts every temptation. He contradicts every emotion in Him that's telling Him to go the other direction with what the Scripture says. It is written, Grafe. Even on the cross… Do we know this? Do we know that literally, as, as Tim Keller often says, when, when Jesus got poked, He bled Scripture? Do we realize that so much of what He said on the cross was direct quotation from the Law and the Prophets and specifically the Psalms? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a direct quotation from Psalm 22.1. Into your hands I commit my spirit. That's a direct quotation from Psalm 31, five. And so, it is a fundamental lack of integrity. It is self-deceit to the highest order to say that we love Jesus and reject any of the Bible because the Bible was the basis for His entire life. They go together and are inseparable. Tim Keller, again, said this about the Scriptures themselves, "'Are you sifting through the Bible?' deciding what you like and what you don't like? Or are you letting the Bible sift through you, deciding what it doesn't like and what it does like? Which is it? Either it is an authority over you, or you are an authority over it. If there's anything you dislike about the Scripture, it means that you have put yourself in a position to judge any verse. Reject part of it, it means you're following none of it, no matter what you tell yourself. This is the part about being a preacher I don't like, because I I have to talk about everything that's in there, and this is one of the things. The Bible pushes back on all of us, it pushes back on me every single day. And the question is are we going to read it, or are we going to yield and let it read us? That's the question. There's a lot at stake based on how that question is answered. Because here's the bar. You want to know what the bar is? You want to know why? Jesus is saying, you know, it's not that the Pharisees and scribes are too fanatical and too strict. It's that they're not fanatical enough and they're not strict enough. Verse 48, same chapter, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the only way that you can get in by your own righteousness. It's the only way you can make it. Absolute cradle to grave perfection. Actually, absolute conception to grave perfection. Because even as David said, King David, the man after God's own heart, in sin my mother conceived me. We're we're all stuck. But here's the beautiful release valve on the the, the meaning of that word, be perfect. Bonhoeffer highlights it in, in, in his commentary. He says the word perfect in the Greek means whole. It's saying be whole, be fully alive, be healthy as your Father is whole and fully alive and healthy. You know, the Apostle Paul writes to young protege pastors named Timothy and Titus in some of his later letters, and one phrase that he uses with both of those young pastors is is sound doctrine. He emphasizes the importance of preaching sound doctrine, preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And the Greek word for sound in that phrase sound doctrine is healthy. The word is healthy. And as we know, right, we're in the Silicon Valley of healthcare, Nashville, Tennessee. Healthy is hard. We who have made new year's resolutions to eat better, to exercise, to sweat more. Healthy is hard. You know, January 1 many of us made resolutions, right? So, studies show, surveys show that 80% of all people who make resolutions on January 1 fall off the wagon by Valentine's Day. So, if you're still keeping your resolution, you have two more days to make it into the 20%. Good luck with that. But then you'll become arrogant, and, and it won't count, and it won't matter. Start comparing yourself to all the people who didn't make it. Edward Miller, who's the dean of Johns Hopkins Medical School, says this, more than 70% of bypass patients revert to unhealthy behavior within two years, go back to stuff that they know will kill them. It's the same thing we do when we revert back to the old self instead of moving forward with the new, when we revert back to the flesh instead of moving forward with the Spirit, when we revert back to self-righteousness rather than moving forward under the covering of the righteousness of Jesus. So, take your least favorite part of the Bible. For each of us, it's going to be a different part, and it is permissible to have a least favorite part of the Bible, right? Because if you don't have parts of the Bible that you don't like, you've never really obeyed God because the nature and essence of obedience is to do things you don't want to do because somebody smarter than you, who loves you more than you love you, has said this is the way, walk in it. Take your least favorite part. I, I don't care what it is. What the Bible says about sexuality. What the Bible says about money and generosity and paying fair wages. What the Bible says about hell. What the Bible says about judgment what the Bible says about sin, yours and mine, what the Bible says about the exclusivity of Jesus, that nobody comes to God except through Him, what the Bible says about the inclusivity of Jesus, that He loves and embraces people that you don't like and calls you to treat them as family in Christ. Healthy discipleship always defers to Isaiah 58, that reminds us that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that God's ways are higher than our ways all the time. And if we knew and saw everything that God knows and sees, every single iota and dot of the Scriptures would both look good to us and feel good to us because it's healthy. The law of God expresses the love of God. And when we don't see it that way, as Shakespeare said… The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Chesterton put it this way, let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. That's what happens when we see the law for what it is. So, devote yourself to Scripture, but second, dismiss your inner Pharisee. What what is the righteousness of the Pharisees that Jesus is talking about here? Well, there is a religious version, which I'll spend a little bit of time on. I, th- I think I've dwelled on that a, l- a lot here. But there's also a non-religious version that I think maybe most of us are more susceptible to even to the religious version because we've, you know, we've gotten exposure to the grace of God and such. But the religious version, just by virtue of summary, is that that, that, that it sees law as duty, external compliance as righteousness, there's no romance to it, though. There, there, there's this detachment, you know, to use the counselor language. There's, there's a heart that's disconnected and disengaged and, and, and emotionally distant. You know, the, the soul is not electrified. It's just duty. It's, it's a chore. It's a means to an end. Far from being a love affair, the religion of the Pharisee is transactional. It's sort of the Smith-Barney uh, philosophy, you know, we move forward in the kingdom of God the old fashioned way we earn it. You know, the philosophy of life for the Pharisee, interestingly enough, is, is very Buddhist. You may, have, uh, you may have heard or read uh, one time or another about the Buddha's dying words. On his deathbed, Buddha's dying words were strive without ceasing. What a stark contrast to the final words of Jesus it's finished. It is finished. For the religion of the Pharisee, the law of God represents pressure. Keep up, buck up, make it into the kingdom the old-fashioned way by earning it. Pressure's on. For the Christian, the law represents freedom. The law says to us, Here's the way. Walk in it. Pursue health. Pursue the very best version of what God wants you to be, which you will find in the end is the very best version of what you want to be. But then there's the non-religious version. Uh, You know, like like I said, I think most of us are probably more susceptible in our kind of type A career-driven environment that, that we're all in. There's so much great about the type A career-driven, you know, environment, by the way. So many great things get done in the world by type A career-driven people. Like, it's not, there's baby and bathwater here. The baby is you're changing the world in great ways. The bathwater is this. You are susceptible to turning your performance into your life-defining metric, into the thing that names you into the thing that enables you to say, I'm successful, in, 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 into the thing that that, 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 that that is on the other side of the sentence, I will be okay if, or on the other side of, I won't be happy until. If that life-defining metric is anything other than what Jesus has already accomplished and already finished, we're screwed. Do we see that? Like, we're, we're up a creek. If our life-defining metric is based on our own performance, our own record, our own righteousness. Lots of potential culprits. I mean, we're talking about idolatry here, right? What is an idol? It's when you take a good thing, a good thing, and you turn it into your ultimate thing, which then turns it into a destructive thing. Potential culprits, your own children, when you pour your identity into your own children, when your happiness is going to be determined based on how they turn out or how they behave or what kind of grades they make or what kind of university they get into, if they even decide to go to a university, you are reversing the flow of the umbilical cord. You are looking to, you are demanding that your children be your Jesus, and no little person should ever have to bear that burden. No big person should ever have to bear that burden, let alone a little person. Other potential culprits, getting into certain social circles, good looks, romance, your net worth. You remember the famous quote from the comedian and actor Jim Carrey when he said, I hope everybody can get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so they'll know that it's not the answer. So, a friend of mine uh, named Rankin Wilburn is a pastor in Los Angeles, and, and uh, he, uh, he gave this, uh, you know, quotation from Jim Carrey in, in a sermon, and, and then one of the uh, aspiring actors uh, in his L.A. congregation approached him afterwards and said, "'I know that what Jim Carrey says is true. I just want to discover it for myself.'" Career is a potential culprit as well, isn't it? So I asked this question in the early service, how many, metal, how many heavy metal fans are, do we have here in the crowd here in Music City? All right, one, two, th- there are three, including Paul Lim. <laughs> you want to jump on the smart cool train? Paul Lim just said he likes heavy metal. There was one hand that went up earlier, and maybe it was that hand that gave you the courage to raise your hand now in the ways that you didn't in the earlier service. So, 1983, a heavy metal guitarist is kicked out of the band that he is part of with no, no warning and no reason. The band members just got together and decided they wanted him out. And this was right after the band signed their very first record deal, right after they reached that thing that they'd been working for for years. And so, after getting kicked out of his band without any warning, he got on a bus and rode all the way across the country from New York City to Los Angeles, and he vowed on that bus bus ride to found a new band that would be so successful that the band that kicked him out would forever regret kicking him out. And he worked very, very hard. He became legendary, and he did form that new band. And their first record went all the way to gold. And this guitarist's name was Dave Mustaine, who founded the heavy metal band Megadeth. That is a band that has sold over 25 million albums. Dave Mustaine alone has a net worth of over $20 million based on his music career. He's now known as one of the most influential musicians in the history of heavy, heavy metal music. He's a living legend in that world of three or four of you. and millions of others, clearly. What was the name of the band that fired him? Metallica, who has sold over 180 million albums. Mustaine uh, had a, a very public interview in 2003 where he broke down into tears in the middle of the interview, and the interviewer said, why are you weeping? You're one of the most successful musicians in the history of music. And Mustaine's tearful reply in a moment of tenderness was this he still considered himself a failure. In his own eyes, he would always be the guy that got kicked out of Metallica. Whether religious or non religious, all forms of righteousness that are based upon our own performance. And our own life-defining metric, if that life-defining metric is outside of what Christ alone has done for us, will lead to some form of contempt, either contempt toward others because we feel superior, either morally superior or body type superior or, you know, social network superior or grade point average superior or athletically superior, fill in the blank, or… We will have contempt toward God because we feel like we've lived a good and virtuous life, and He's giving us a lot less than what we deserve. He's giving us less than what He owes us. Guess what? God owes you nothing. You entitled brat, God owes you nothing. Nothing. And yet He's given you everything in Christ. Stop. Stop holding God in contempt. Withholding your life defining metric, which will destroy you from you. And the other form of contempt is toward ourselves if we fail at our own law. No matter what, we're up the creek unless we discover our true righteousness by renouncing our own. Verse 17, Jesus says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish, but I have come to fulfill. In other words, it's not up to you at all. It's all up to me, Jesus says, to establish your righteousness. The path of righteousness, in other words, is through your own unrighteousness. That's how you get to true and everlasting and perfected righteousness. As Leonard Cohen said, if you don't like heavy metal, you've got to like Leonard Cohen then. There's a crack in everything and that's how the light gets in. That includes you, and that includes the crack in you. Exposing that crack is the way that the light gets in, renouncing your own unrighteousness. Or as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the way you keep the Sermon on the Mount is to recognize that you'll never be able to keep the Sermon on the Mount. You know, your life-defining metric then becomes Jesus' record, and the fact that you are united with Christ through faith, and in being united with Christ through faith, everything that's true of Jesus in the eyes of the Father is now true of you. Because of what He's done for you, the pressure is off of you, because He took it all on Himself. Brennan Manning will close it out for us. The kingdom of God belongs to people who are not trying to look good or impress anybody, even themselves. They are not plotting how they can call attention to themselves, worrying about how their actions will be interpreted, or wondering if they will get gold stars for their behavior. The child of God does not have to struggle to get himself in a good position. He does not have to craft ingenious ways of explaining his position. He does not have to create a pretty face for himself, and he does not have to achieve any state of spiritual feeling or intellectual understanding. All he has to do is happily accept the cookies." the gift of the kingdom. The way that you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is to repent of your own sin and to repent of your own righteousness. That's how you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And then you'll be clothed with Jesus. And then you'll start to recognize that you're clothed with His righteousness and not your own. And when you do, your religion will become less of a theory and more of a love affair. And even the hard parts of Scripture will start over time sounding healthy to you. Thanks be to God. Let's turn our eyes to the screen together. And let's join millions of other believers across the world in in praying a prayer as we move into our time of communion together. This is a prayer for the sixth Sunday after the epiphany. O God, the strength of all who put their trust in you, mercifully accept our prayers. And because, through the weakness of our mortal nature, we can do no good thing without you, grant us the help of your grace, that in keeping your commandments we may please you in thought, word, and deed. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy like to invite you just to take a moment of silence as the children come in, as the servers uh, come forward uh, uh, to, to help serve the Lord's Supper, and as the ushers get in place. Just take a moment of silence to offer thanks, to reflect on something that the Lord may have told you today or spoken to you through the Scripture, through the singing, through the message, through the neighbor sitting next to you. Uh, we'll take a moment of silence, and then I'll lead us to the table. So, if all the servers could come forward, that'd be great.